Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Philip Martin, in for Callie Crosley this week on Under the Radar. A new report finds Massachusetts storms have grown in frequency and severity since the early 1900s. The number of intense two-day storms has increased by 74%, and that means many homes are becoming more and more vulnerable to flooding. And across New England, where many of the country's oldest buildings are located, some cities have begun preparing for the worst of climate change by picking up historic buildings and moving them. But a United Nations panel says we can keep the worst effects of climate change at bay if, 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 if industrialized countries can cooperate in cutting global greenhouse gases in half by 2030. That and more on our Environmental News Roundtable. Later in the show, Gen Z has become the newest generation to embrace holistic medicine. But what has pushed them in the direction of supplements and superfoods? People are talking to their doctors more about working with these alternative therapies. So I think it's just more of a culture change. The pandemic was likely a big reason why so many young people have begun to move away from traditional medicine. We speak with two people in the industry to understand what motivated this switch. But first, joining me remotely, Dr. Gore Basu, physician, co-director of the Center for Health Equity Education and Advocacy at Cambridge Health Alliance and Health Equity Fellow at the Center for Climate Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hi, Gaurav. Thanks so much for having me, Philip. Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Welcome, Beth. So glad to be here with you, Philip. And Kabul Eames, political director of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Thanks for joining us, Kabul. Great to be here. Thank you. So quite a bit going on. But of course, the first thing is this report out of um, that we're just hearing about, this new report that finds many Massachusetts homes are vulnerable to flooding. Uh, And I don't think we should be too surprised, but the fact that over the last century, the number of intense multi-day storms increased by 74% might be a wake-up call for um, for the general public. Uh, your views on, on this. Let's start with you, um, uh, Dr. Basu. Well, certainly the first thing that comes to my mind is the health implications of this. So things that come to my mind immediately is concern about, uh, you know, water damage in homes that could cause mold, which of course will cause people to have serious uh, allergies. Uh, you know, we want our homes to be safe and protected. And so the idea that climate could impact the health of our children within our home is concerning. And it's important to understand that that flood water is often very unhealthy water. You know, sewage uh, discharges, uh, flooding can uh, hold hazardous waste, even carcinogens. Um, so we, we really need to be thinking, you know, we're in this era of too much water or not enough water. Um, and we've got to build the infrastructure so that we can 
try to capture uh, flood water, you know, things like uh, uh, rain gardens. And, you know, I live here in Cambridge and they've actually done some really important work in the alewife stormwater uh, wetland. There's, there's a lot of green infrastructure we can put in place to try to mitigate this, but it's alarming and, and, and daunting. And Kabul, uh, does this surprise you? Uh, it is it is indeed alarming and daunting, but does it surprise you that the number of storms, uh, the intense multi-day, multi-day storms have increased by 74% over the last century? And what does that mean uh, for uh, folks tr- just trying to go about their lives? Well, it's not terribly surprising uh, with the climate change with the fact of all of the just in heat intense days, whether or not it be a hurricane as well, you know, fires in the West, I mean, our weather is unstable. So what was alarming for me when I was reading this article was just how many people are unprepared. And I do see at least the city of Boston tackling this issue with uh, community ambassadors, they call them, and they are setting up people to go door to door and ask people if they're prepared for floods. Um, you know, how many people in their home, you know, are disabled? You know, questions like that, we really need to find out because a one-off article in the Globe is great to wait to raise awareness, but I also understand that there are climate articles and stories and warnings coming out every single day, multiple times a day, and people just get overwhelmed and overloaded. And we need our governments, our state governments, our federal governments, our local governments to tackle this issue and really get to the heart of the matter, which is education as well as resiliency planning. And, you know, and when you say being prepared, uh, there also has, you have to be prepared by being mentally prepared. And Beth, I'm still concerned, uh, as are many, that there is still a degree of climate skepticism out there, regardless of what people are seeing empirically, uh, observing with their own eyes. Do you find that to be a problem? I know the conversation has written about this in the past, the impact of of climate skepticism. Uh, Is that perhaps one of the reasons, in your view, why people may be ill-prepared? I've noticed that in reporting on climate for so many years, that When you start seeing real life effects, you can call it climate, you could call it a bad year, you can call it a bad, a a bad month, but that's what makes people wake that that is what makes people wake up, I think, and start paying attention. I think the difficulty here is a couple things. We're seeing flooding where people has never, where people have never been flooded before. So there's a sort of sort of sense of disbelief, it can happen to them. Um, one option that I really like what Kabul is saying is this idea of going door to door and asking people how prepared they are. The other thing I, I did find alarming, which was, I think, very interesting. Um, Boston has a lot of filled wetlands, um, a lot, the whole Back Bay, uh, a lot of other places. Those wetlands are particularly vulnerable to flooding and shifting. And I think that is something that's going to really hit people in the future. You know, there's a lot of underground streams. I mean, just look what's going on with the Muddy River right now, restoring it. Um, Flooding can increase, but also the grounds can shift that could potentially impact the security of building foundations. Uh, Yeah. And speaking of building foundations, now now we're also hearing about this uh, report where it may become necessary to move buildings um, old buildings, historic buildings, uh, from um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to Provincetown, Massachusetts. A uh, number of cities are preparing for the worst of climate change in order to preserve their history. 
Um, that's I can see where this would be necessary. How pragmatic is it? And shouldn't there perhaps be another emphasis on how to, if you will, prepare for climate change that would seem to suggest that this is far more urgent? Yes, the no- notion of moving buildings, that's fine and good. But what about uh, other aspects of this um, uh, of, of climate change that we are already in the midst of? I did find this article to be heartbreaking, particularly, you know, hearing about the, the mold. Um, you know, mold is something that I've been hearing a lot about down in Louisiana as well when they were rebuilding after Katrina. And, you know, it just caused so much havoc for health reasons, um, as well as just the, the full-blown disempowerment people felt and the fact that they were going to rebuild only to possibly find themselves in the situation once again. I do think that uh, there there are solutions that I keep hearing about out of New Jersey, which they, where they are paying people to move as a, as a resident. As far as historical societies go, I mean, you know, when do you move? I, I think that, and how do you evacuate a city? You know, these are all of the things that I think about in my work. Um, and I know that governments are trying to prepare for them, but it's really scary because all of the predictions have been on the conservative side. And once we think something is going to happen, it turns out that no, it's actually going to happen five years later. It's something that we're going to have to explore and we're going to have to do it really, really quickly. So what about not just moving buildings? What about moving houses? Uh, the folks, for example, in, um, in Situate, uh, they know this, this well and uh, uh, in Cohasset along the coast. What are your thoughts about uh, the, the impact on just residents, let alone um, some of the the country's oldest buildings. Look, we're going to have to make choices. Maybe it's not so important to save a historic house, um, but maybe save another one. You know what I mean? But I think the emphasis should really be on um, changing FEMA and flood insurance uh, flood insurance laws. I remember when I worked for the Globe, I uh, there was a place on Oceanside Drive in Situate that had been rebuilt. I think it's up to 16 times now with federal money. And these need to go, th- these kind of incentives need to be geared towards, you know, retreat or relocation. Um, it's not easy. It's not. But the cost to continue paying for the same properties to be rebuilt again and again, it just it just, just doesn't make any sense. And Gorp, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely concerned about the health aspects of, of this. You mentioned mold. And as uh, Beth uh, uh, just mentioned and Cobble mentioned the, imp- the after effects of uh, Katrina, for example, uh, how are we preparing for uh, the, the inevitable uh, results from spores and mold and so on and so forth uh, that will um, creep on, on into people's homes as a result of these, uh, these rising sea levels? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly equity, you know, is at the heart of everything we're talking about here. And, you know, the concern is who is going to be able to get to places that are safer, healthier, and who's not. And so while we're thinking about these policies, we have to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to avoid the harms of climate change. And and frankly, that's not how it's playing out right now. Um, We've got to have more protections for people, especially people who rent their homes, um, to make sure that when they're um, coming into a home that it's, you know, these evaluations of uh, the home um, are, are really evaluating for mold. A patient with lung cancer who um, is on oxygen and um, has had major mold issues in her home, but uh, the landlord has been very challenging to address it. 
Um, you know, my mind is always on how do we do this? These are big challenges. Uh, the answer is always to end the use of fossil fuels and um, to, to mitigate climate change. There's a new report that says it's still possible to hold global warming to rel relatively safe levels, um, thus uh, perhaps uh, ameliorating some of what we uh, can anticipate occurring in Boston. But doing so, uh, according to the report, will require global cooperation and billions of dollars and big changes. And it probably also means that the Republicans and the Democrats are going to have to agree on something. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the Democrats have tried uh, and Biden has tried. Uh, but, but what are your hopes and, uh, and aspirations in the context of this new report? Can it happen? Philip, if I may, um, the EPA is uh, releasing regulations that are uh, going to regulate uh, emissions, uh, greenhouse gas uh, pollution from our energy sector. Um, as I've read the original initial reports, they're saying that we're going to um, have a system in which carbon pollution is ended by uh, the late 2030s, by 2040, that these plants will need to either capture uh, that pollution or use alternative energy sources. Um, there's a lot of important good news here. I mean, uh, regulation like that is only possible because of what I think is a game-changing uh, Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year that um, uh, has ambitions to decrease our U.S. emissions by 40% by 2030. Uh, I've been reading reports saying that this might pull in public investment three times more. We were planning on investing hundreds of billions of dollars, and now studies are suggesting that actually could pull in more than a trillion dollars of public money and another couple trillion dollars of private money. Um, there are studies showing that the grid could clean up by 80% by 2030. And of course, big regulations on um, internal combustion engines are, are transportation-based emissions. So um, I believe that we are in a transformative moment uh, that um, society has spoken, the markets have spoken, that we are moving to a clean energy future um, and that um, regulations like what the EPA are doing right now point us uh, in a direction with clarity, with stability, and saying, let's all build towards this better world, this healthier, more sustainable world. Um, and so we've got to keep going. We're not nearly where we need to be. Uh, but frankly, you know, we're, we're, we're somewhere where I didn't think we could have been a few years ago. So we need to keep having that kind of catalytic change. Really good point. Uh, Kabul, if um, this is not challenged in court, uh, and if... Um... Uh, individuals like Joe Manchin uh, uh, don't help torpedo this through uh, some type of legislation. Uh, I assume you too are going to uh, hold this up as uh, as watershed. Absolutely, no. I mean, I think that that's a really great point. I think that we do. We have to remember where we are and where we've been. I will say that the fossil fuel industry isn't going anywhere, and they have just raked in astronomical profits, real blockbuster numbers of $199 billion in 2022. Um, they are going to fight this tooth and nail, but the states have taken notice, and we are planning on bringing them to court here in Massachusetts through our attorney generals, and other attorney generals across the United States are suing them as well. And we also need climate rep reparations. If they're making this much income off of the backs of black and brown people, disadvantaged communities with their power plants um, and their dirty fuels, then they can afford to pay into the resiliency and mitigation that we need. And there are state laws that could help bolster this. 
and there is legislation in place that would hold them accountable and create a super fund that would then, you know, give money to all of these fabulous ideas that have existed for decades and finally implement them and create the world we want. So we're definitely talking about progress. Uh, that progress is reflected also in the headline uh, on the conversation. Uh, Beth, uh, it asks, what is carbon capture and storage? Power plant CCS gets a boost with EPA's proposed new rules, but it's not a quick solution. Your summary of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I just want to I, I just want to go back and I'm an optimist. And I think there's room for optimism. I think the market forces because of the Inflation Reduction Act are really are, are going to come to bear in a bigger way. And and some of the more dire warnings for uh, really hot temperatures have, have not come true. I, I do want to also point out that I, people don't talk about it a lot, but the last IPCC report in Chapter 5, they really talked about, you know, individual behavior really leading to large-scale change. And I, I do believe that's not been explored and that's going to become a more powerful force. But as far as carbon capture, um, it's 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 gotten some really great uh, advances. Um, it's uh, very challenging to, to do it, to do it, to do it right. Um, now they have tax credits um, it, with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, uh, which is maybe might make it more marketable. Um, it, it's also a boon for fossil fuel power plants. Um, so, it, you know, <laughs> it goes both ways. Uh, but I think what we're going to see is a, a, a myriad of solutions coming up of which carbon capture is definitely one of them. Yeah. I, look, your optimism, all of your optimism, I think, is really appreciated. And I guarantee you listeners appreciate it. I'm thinking about, however, those things which stand in the way of, as a news person, I have to, I'm sorry. And, and I'm thinking about Senator Joe Manchin, um, who, who chairs the Senate Energy uh, Committee. Now, he said this week he would oppose every Biden administration nominee for the Environmental Protection Agency in anticipation of what he called a radical regulation the agency uh, announced uh, and uh, that would regulate emissions from fossil fuel power plants. Um, what is required in your view to basically drive home the, home the point that this is beyond urgent? Now, in Boston, some activists have done things like deflate tires, uh, but I've heard from folks on the streets that that uh, does not do a whole lot uh, for, for them to... Uh, to if you will, engage in a campaign against against climate change and to pressure people like Joe Manchin. But what are your views about this, this type of thing, deflating tires or or uh, basically uh, throwing paint on art in, in Europe? How do you protest? I think these acts have a place in, in, in the public sphere to get attention. But Civil think, disobedience, right? Uh, right, but I do think they—they they really there's you know, there's a big danger of a backlash, and that's really important. Like deflating tires seems, I, I, it seems completely mismatched. You're not hitting the the, the people who are causing the problem. You, you know what I mean? It just uh, I, I think it's it feels very it feels very off. And the same thing with the with the with the art, um, which didn't really seem to have a climate component to it when it was done. Yeah, well, last month you had the environmental group called Tire Extinguishers. Uh, they claim responsibility for deflating the tires of 43 luxury SUVs in Beacon Hill. 
And CBS News spoke with one unhappy resident about it. You sort of have to draw a line. You know, what was accomplished from doing all this? That's not a solution to the world's problems. It's, uh, it's a destruction of property. It's if you want to make change, you make it through the ballot box. And so your point, again, uh, Beth, seems to be reflected in that um, in that comment. Um, what about um, yours, Cobble, your view about this? Yeah, I, I work with activists primarily. Uh, I don't really know any of them that agree with this tactic, to be honest with you. Um, it does show the frustration, but to Beth's point, it is it's it's mismanaged. You know, changing the individual consumer choices is not going to fix the climate crisis. And I think that they should be focusing on the real villains, which is the fossil fuel corporations, you know, and, and their record pro profits, as I've said before. Um, you know, these are the same corporations that push the line um, that consumers were responsible. BP, as a matter of fact, came up with the term carbon footprint that shifted the blame to individual consumers. And I think that the finger wagging is not helpful. And I think that the ballot box is a true measure of how things are gonna get done. Joe Manchin is facing a Republican challenger in his home state of West Virginia. So he has long been a rabble rouser when it comes to anything against the fossil fuel. I mean, that's, that's, that's against fossil fuel industry and their profits. You know, he, he's been a problem for some time um, as a Democrat. You know, I really don't agree with most of what he says and does. And I know that people in West Virginia and the activists in West Virginia are working tirelessly to raise someone else in, in, the, in the fact of getting them into the White House um, against his Republican challenger even. Gorup, I don't know if you had a comment about this at, at all. Yeah, look, my, my approach is that the, the key to this work is to make climate change uh, human, to, to put human faces in front of this. When I have spoken at city halls or the state house uh, and explained the health implications of climate action, um, I've seen how the room changes. Um, we've got to be talking about the ways that air pollution, you know, it's making our elderly folks at more risk for dementia. It makes it harder uh, for ch children's uh, cognitive development. Pregnancy outcomes like uh, premature labor and low birth weight. I, I actually believe that we're wired to look after each other and take care of each other. And the, the opportunity of climate change is not only to, you know, end uh, human-made emissions, but have this conversation about how we put healthy infrastructure all around us. And the flip side of this is the extraordinary benefits we will have by getting off of fossil fuels in a clean energy future. And so um, you know, I think that it has happened. We've hit a social tipping point in which we get it, we see it uh, all around us. We need to make it proximal and about what people love and who they love and why climate change is a threat to that and how we can stop that. And look, uh, you know, to the point of, of the U.S. Senate and, and uh, senators from West Virginia, I mean, you know, New York State just passed an extraordinary bill um, ending gas hookups to all um buildings in the next few years. I mean, state-based policy is thriving. We have strong, you know, climate leadership here in Massachusetts. Um, and I just do really quickly want to go back to Cobble's point about on the global scale. Um, you know, I've, I, I've worked abroad. I've worked in these communities, you know, on the Bay of Bengal coastline where, um, you know, impoverished villages where, uh, you know, cyclones are coming in and they wipe out uh, not only the communities, but this painstaking progress they've had over time for child nutrition and getting kids in school. 
and they rebuild and they continue to be on the front lines of these extraordinary climate risks for disaster. And so I, those are one of the first faces I think of. Uh, I think about, you know, and, and my, my family's from these areas, uh, of folks who are sitting on the front lines of that, having a tiny footprint, uh, think, you know, uh, across the world, folks are burning fossil fuels that are impacting them. And so we've really got to sort through, and I think we have not developed even a foundational conversation about global governance, yeah, you know, I think that's a really good point. And I, I think it's also so, so necessary to connect the dots for folks that the one reason you're seeing so many people heading to the U.S. border or heading to the uh, the uh, shorelines of Europe uh, from the global south uh, has to do with climate change. It's a uh, crop uh, failure, so on and so forth. And I think we have to remind people that, panelists, how do you think our people should prepare for upcoming heat waves this summer? And what are the risks to health of, for, for those folks who are most vulnerable? Can, can we talk about that? Yeah, maybe I'll kick us off. I mean, heat is, is a threat to everything I care about as a primary care doctor. You know, um, heat stroke is one of the most severe forms, right, of heat-related disease. And what happens there basically is that our body uh, is trying to maintain a core temperature. It works very hard to sustain that equilibrium. Uh, initially, when we're getting too hot inside of ourselves, we sweat. Our cardiac output increases by increasing our heart rate, and we try to flush that heat out of our body. Uh, but for folks who are older, who have more health conditions, and if you know the heat is very severe, our body can't keep up with that. And so um, it can create a cascade of inflammatory responses. Our, our cells stop working. They become permeable. So enzymes stop working. Um, it can cause, you know, cardiovascular collapse. And, and you know, it, not only that, but, uh, you, you know, again, it, it basically impacts every organ system, increases the risk of heart attacks, mental health distress. Uh, my friend John Jay at uh, BU School of Public Health has studied how there's increased gun violence on days of, of heat waves. So um, we, we and, and, and again, some folks can protect themselves, right, and get away from the heat, and other people can't. And so we've got to be prepared. I think, uh, you know, Harvard Sea Change is um, uh, doing a program now where there's going to be heat alerts going out to our clinics. Uh, Caleb Dresser's running that and Ari Bernstein, where uh, we prepare our clinics to say, hey, the good news is you've got time to prepare, right? We know when they're coming. Indeed. We need to be informing our patients of the risks, educating them. And it's basic. We just have to keep people cooler. They need to be in cooler parts of their home, hydrating. Um, if they're alone and don't have ways to cool in their home, uh, to be with someone or another place when, when heat waves hit. So we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, and I think our healthcare system can play a role in, in preparing people in, uh, during the heat waves. I, I appreciate that. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar, and I'm Philip Martin in for Cali. And here with me are who you were just listening to, in fact, Dr. Gore Basu. He's Health Equity Fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Beth Daly is also here, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S., and Cabo Ames, uh, political director of Better Future Project. We're talking about the impact of climate change in Massachusetts and elsewhere. Uh, speaking of climate change um, elsewhere, in Florida, there seems to be a, a yet another DeSantis initiative, this one targeting the notion of gas stoves. Um, <laughs> The uh, we've we're hearing that gas stoves uh, and it's obvious that they emit uh, release a lot of um, indoor air pollution uh, from stoves. Massachusetts is hoping to do something about this, but other uh, states uh, uh, are turning it into a um, contrarian issue. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the um, 
the whole gas stove issue. Uh, Beth? I mean, yeah, gas stoves, it's funny. It's becoming a really, uh, uh, it, I feel like sometimes climate change solutions go through these like uh, ups and downs. It seems like it's an important issue. From my, from my recollection, um, Ron, Ron DeSantis had said he was going to um, uh, exempt gas appliances in general from sales tax, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and I mean, that feels a little just um, mean-spirited. To be honest with you, it's sort of encouraging a problem. I mean, sometimes you may not be able to like stop a problem with incentives, but it sounds like he's creating more of a problem by by saying, you know, buy more gas stoves. And actually, when we know they are a problem, well, it's just it's like another of uh, 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 one of those uh, anti woke, if you will, of diatribes that uh, he has is engaged in, and yes, I don't mind calling it a diatribe. That's 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 what it is. It's meant to to uh, stir up the base, but it's causing great harm to the environment. Exactly. Yeah, it totally is. And and uh, he knows, you know, he's he's a skilled politician. He knows what he's doing, and going against science um, is a tactic that he is using in research. Cobble, your your thoughts. I mean, a lot of folks also can't necessarily um, uh, change what they have at the moment. Many people have gas stoves, uh, so the, the notion of imp- of changing to one that is powered by electricity uh, may not be something that's within mo- most people's uh, ability. Right, and also a lot of our electricity right now is still dirty. So I, when I think about gas stoves, I think about the harm that it causes within a home. Uh, the asthma that it causes within a home, um, the benzene that we know that's in the air. The Physicians for Social Responsibility put out a great report a couple of years ago about gas in general. And, you know, Massachusetts was the home of a gas explosion. And so I think that with our new governor, I think that we have an opportunity to seize the moment. And while we're not going to talk about phasing out gas stoves, you know, today or tomorrow, what we can talk about and what we should be talking about is the technologies that exist and through the IRA, how we're going to get those technologies into people's homes and not have them carry the cost. I think that that was the purpose of the IRA. And I know that the state is looking into many levers that it can pull to get these appliances into homes, but we also have to green our grids. But I think first and foremost, when I think about gas stoves, I do think about the health of the individual that is um, inside that home and think about how we can help them in the immediate. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, We're going to have to wrap this up. And I'm wondering if uh, with 30 seconds each, you can give me your um, prognosis for the near future in terms of our environment uh, and also perhaps uh, accompany that with some good news. Let's start with you, Cobble. Thanks. Um, wow. There's, I, where do I begin? Um, well, you know, we, we now have, um, like I just said, we have the first climate chief in Massachusetts. And I know that she is working diligently with the administration to bring this IRA funding to individuals so that they can decarbonize their homes. Um, through the IRA, we're going to be decarbonizing our vehicles. There is a lot of work going into freeing public transportation so that people can take that and they won't carry that cost burden. Um, you know, we are going into summer. So all through all of these initiatives, 
initiatives, including one of my own, I'll just plug one of my own programs, Communities Responding Against Extreme Weather, where we also uh, work with people with around heat and making sure that they have the education that they need to stay cool. And we provide air conditioners. And there's just so much goodwill out there and there's so much opportunity to build relationship with one another and build community. And I think that when we do that, that everything else will just fall into place. So that's my good news. I appreciate that. Gorp? Yeah, you know, it's it's this disorienting time in which um, extraordinary change is happening, transformative change is happening, and we see the pain uh, and suffering of climate uh, like no other time in human history. Um, and we need to just keep with urgency moving forward uh, and be, um, I, I think my focus now is how do we build out this new clean energy economy? You know, we need transmission lines, we need to build positive things. And that's going to take a lot of work and coordination, um, getting things like that hydro from Quebec into Massachusetts, things like that. We, we really need to make progress on those fronts. And the other point I would just make is we can't leave biodiversity and ecological stability um, you know, out of the conversation here. Um, that's critical to human health, um, that, that we have rich uh, ecology around us. Uh, it's a human health issue. Um, so while we're making progress on decreasing emissions and pollutants, uh, we've got to keep an eye on that as well. Okay, much appreciated. Beth? I, I can't say it better than um, Dr. Basu and uh, Cabell said, but just, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, in, we're in a period of hope. I mean, we have some mechanisms and tools at our hand to really make a difference. And um, so as we all are optimists, I think, you know, there's, there's a deadline approaching, but it looks like we may be able to meet it. Indeed, indeed. Thank you all. I really want to thank you for, for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We've been talking with Dr. Gorb Basu. He's a physician, co-director of the Center for Health Equity Education and Advocacy at Cambridge Health Alliance and Health Equity Fellow at the Center for Climate Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. and Cabo Ames, the political director of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Coming up, the pandemic showed us the ways our healthcare industry can fail. Some took this as a sign to turn elsewhere for improving their health. Holistic health practices have become increasingly popular, especially among Gen Z. From herbs to red light therapy, young people are taking different routes to achieve a healthier lifestyle. But what exactly made them change the way they deal with their health? Was it just the pandemic or has social media also played a role? That's next. This is Under the Radar, and I'm Philip Martin, in for Callie Crosley. <laughs>